0: I'd like to open with prayer. Before I open with prayer, actually. uh, um, It's so nice to see Nicholas and his family here today. Thanks for being here, Nicholas. Um, We started down this morning, of course, and we got to the turnoff at West Glenwood, and we could see this line of cars ahead of us. So we zipped right up to the Laws place, and Hoping they'd offer us breakfast and <laughs> said we had to sit there and gossip with them for an hour hour and a half <laughs> but it was it was really nice. we had a very enjoyable time and um anyway, there were a number of cars off, of course, between there and here, but thank you, Lord, for a safe trip down today and um Getting back to the subject of why we're here today, I'm going to be reading this sermon, which I have a tendency to do. Not, I don't, I can't, don't have that knack like Zach does of being able to kind of add a little bit here and there. And this is not really much of an exegetical sermon. Again, uh, I, I praise Zach because he's able to take that line of verse from the Bible and just you know, dissect it and see all oh, that takes us here and this that takes us here and really examine it. So if you'll just kind of bear with me, we'll appreciate, I'd appreciate that today. Um, as you can see, the this is going to be from 1 Timothy one fifteen. So before we start, let me just ask the Lord to be with us today. Our Father, we just praise you and honor you and, and recognize you as the only reason that we have any purpose in this life. We just, uh, I just ask that You would guide me with these words that I've put down on paper and I pray that these words will be true to Your Scripture and that uh, everyone will be reinforced and, and will grow through these words and, and as they do, they will honor You and Your Son more and more each day. I pray this in the name of Your Son. Amen. <coughs> The idea for this sermon started about two months ago. You may remember that Zach was giving away, after church, some paperback books that he no longer wanted. Fortunately, or unfortunately perhaps, I took two of those home. One of them, judging by its title, was on a subject that has always intrigued me. Its title is, No Place for Sovereignty. What's wrong with free will theism? Do you remember this, Zach? I think it's one you never read, right? Okay, well, you're going to be in for a surprise. (laughs) Written by a man named R.K. McGregor Wright, who lists Trinity Evangelical Divinity School among his educational background. So please blame Zach if you don't care for this sermon. <laughs> Maybe you are like me, and really latch onto and enjoy a verse which states a plain and simple fact about salvation. A verse like Acts 4:12: "There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved." Now this sentence is a proposition. A proposition either affirms something or it denies something. Propositions are the building blocks of logic. When I, when I wrote that line down, you know who I thought of? Stan Badgett. He would have loved that line. Just as a sidelight here, isn't it interesting that Jesus is referred to as the Logos? the logic he is the sum of the reasoning and order of the created world so acts 412 makes a simple statement affirming a basic quality about jesus as far as i know all professing christians believe acts 412 and additionally some that we would not recognize as christians do the same But their ideas of who Jesus was, we would consider to be wrong. Namely, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses. Where in the Bible do we read that Jesus is the reason, the logic, the logos? John 1.1 In the beginning was the Word, the logos. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But where in the Bible is the proposition that unequivocally states that persons of their free will choose to believe in Christ? This seems to beg the question, what was God the Father's purpose in sending his son to die a substitutionary death? Was it to make it possible for people to be saved? Or was it to save people? Now we come to the title verse for this sermon. 1 Timothy 1.15 Quote, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I, that is Paul, am chief. Knowing this, we can understand that there is a purpose with logic undergirding it in answering the question about making it possible to save people versus to definitely save some people. If Jesus came into the world with the objective of saving sinners, he must necessarily decree that his Father, through the work of the Holy Spirit, can necessarily decree to supply whatever condition is needed to secure that result. This is where there is a fly in the ointment of Arminian thinking. And it is found where the Arminian believers denied a doctrine that had been accepted by Christian orthodoxy for 1,500 years. Namely, God's, and I was a little surprised to find this next term, what he was referring to. They denied God's omniscience. But who were the Armenians? Let's begin with a little history. We know the Reformation began in earnest with Martin Luther's posting of his 95 theses in 1517. Simply asking in the established church to consider his 95 points. A few years later, along came John Calvin. He lived from 1509 to 1564. He agreed with Luther on almost all of the points. And Calvinism flourished. Next came a man. Jacobus Arminius. Born in 1560. So. He was only four years old. When Calvin died. He led a movement by men. Who considered themselves. To be Calvinists. But who disagreed with. How many particular points of Calvinism? <laughs> Five. To settle the controversy, a great meeting known as the Synod of Dort met to discuss, debate, and settle the issue. The body decided against the followers of Arminius, who, by the way, had died eight or nine years before the Synod was even held. Their movement survived and survives today, given the name Arminians. You may be thinking... What do the five points of Calvinism refuted by these early dissenters have to do with God's omniscience? Well, at least some of them, in the years following the Remonstrance, as it was called, realized that if the decisions of a person's free will, as they believed, are not controlled by God, neither can they be known by God in advance. In other words, his omniscience is denied. Now, this gets a little deep and you're, you're scratching your head. I'm not sure if I followed this, but just be patient. Why? Because by definition, their decisions are of free will and autonomous of God. Therefore, God in this scenario must limit his own power of omniscience to give a person's autonomous will room to act. Why? Because for some future event to happen with certainty, God must know it with certainty. And further, if a future event is known to God in his omniscience, for example, a person's quote-unquote acceptance of Christ, it is either known with certainty or it is not known with certainty. In other words, God's omniscience eliminates their concept of free will. According to Dr. Wright, the author of the book, the Arminians of the 1600s were consistent in their thinking, that the ones who were consistent in their thinking realized the contradiction in their theories which pitted God's omniscience against free will. And they ended up rejecting the omniscience of God. Confusing? But not so much if you really think about it. It certainly appears that the vast number of evangelical Christians today who have not studied the intricacies of their own beliefs, but have just assumed, and that's an important word, assumed. They assume that we exercise our free wills regarding salvation have not thought as deeply about it as their early predecessors did. Dr. Wright insists that there is not even one verse in the Bible that uses any term that can be interpreted as indicating free will. He, of course, acknowledges, though, that there are verses which make a person stop and consider if free will is part of our human makeup. There is one particular verse that I have always struggled with in this category and will admit to not knowing quite how to interpret it. Matthew twenty-three, thirty-seven. Anybody know right off the top what I'm speaking of there? This is where Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Just earlier in chapter 23, Jesus has been excoriating the scribes and Pharisees for 36 verses. But then in verse 37, he sums up his accusations by saying the following. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her under her wings, me. but you were not willing. Oh no! There's that word, willing. It certainly sounds like free will. Doctor Wright refers to this simply as careless Armenian exegesis, but he doesn't go on to give. His explanation of it. His own exegesis. But what do we know about Jerusalem? We know that it, and especially the temple, were the focal point of the Jewish laws and hopes of those people. In addition, we know that the Jewish people were given prophecy after prophecy of a coming Messiah. We know from Second Corinthians chapter 3 if you remember this incident that when Moses descended from Mount Sinai with the tablets he covered his face with a veil so that the people wouldn't see the fading glory of the law so yes the glory of the law was fading away even in Moses's day in verse 14 it says for until this day that is Paul's day in this case Paul is saying until our time The same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their hearts. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Remember that in the Old Testament, salvation was all about works. About people doing something to earn their salvation. But again, here in the New Testament, chapter 4, verse 3, we read, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, Lest the light of the glory of Christ should shine on them. Unquote. Arminianism is also about people doing something. Now let's return to John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Quote, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And yet, there were those few in Israel, in Jerusalem, who it seems resisted their dependence on the fading law for salvation. First, Simeon, probably an old man to whom it was revealed by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the consolation of Israel. And he did see him when Joseph and Mary brought their baby to the temple. And there was Anna, an old woman who served in the temple night and day, and also recognized the Lord as the one who brought redemption in Jerusalem. These are exceptions to the rule who dominated the Jews in the Old Testament, which dominated the Jews in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 29.4 Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Unquote. And this continues. Today we would read in Acts 2.39 For the promise is to you and to your children and to all afar off, as many as the Lord God will call Concerning careless exegesis, let's look at a few more verses which seem to destroy the possibility of Matthew 23:37 indicating free will. We all have the Bible to refer to, and we all know the principle of interpreting Scripture by Scripture. In the light of several more verses, I think we can see that a free will interpretation of Matthew 23:37 sure looks like careless exegesis. So let's take a closer look and see if their interpretation agrees with other verses. Let's go way back in time to Moses writing the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, keep in mind that old maxim that the Old Testament conceals the New Testament and the New Testament reveals the Old. Look for a pattern in the following verses. Exodus thirty-three, nineteen. Quote, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Deuteronomy 7, 67. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself. The Lord did not set his love on you because you were more in numbers than any other people. For you are the least of peoples, but because he loves you. Unquote. Speaking of being few in numbers, this verse that I just read from Deuteronomy brings to my mind Matthew 7, verses 13 through 14. Quote, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. But there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Can you see the, the new explaining the old in that verse? Then here, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. In Isaiah fifty five eleven. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Again, I ask, why did Jesus die? Just to create the possibility of some people being saved. The Arminian position. Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. This is great, it's wonderful, an honor. Some might say, therefore, why does God in the Reformed tradition condemn so many to death and hell? Ironically, the answer is in the fact of their godly image. They had no reason to distort the image, but they did. And it is only God's grace that allows some few to ultimately regain his image in full. It also might occur to you to ask the following question. Will we have free will in heaven? Anybody want to vote on that? One way or the other? It would seem that an Arminian must believe so. It is a noble thing. A gift from God to have free will. So it only makes sense that we'll also have it in heaven. Well, that begs the question. If we do have it in heaven... Why wouldn't we still be able to reject God even then? It seems that free will is free will wherever it exists. To which a Calvinist must reply, free grace is only as free as the character which produces it on earth or in heaven. And in heaven we will reach the final stage of our salvation, that is glorification. When we will truly and completely be new creations in Christ. Unable to rebel against God. I wonder if that sounds intimidating or liberating to an Arminian. Probably the single most devastating portion of the Bible against free willism is found in the ninth chapter of Romans. Verses six through twenty four. In verses one through five, Paul is sorrowing over the fate of his countrymen. He's even wishing that he could be accursed in their place. Then in verse six, he continues on. And I'm going to read that to you directly out of the Bible. If you hang with me for just a second here. Romans chapter nine. <clears throat> This is kind of a long reading, so tune in. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, It was said to her, The older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, "Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay, for the same lump, from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called. I could probably read to you dozens or perhaps hundreds of verses indicating this reality of God's sovereignty. And you might well reply, good grief, you've made your point. Why is it so important to you? It is important because, as some philosopher once said, he who does not know history is bound to repeat it. I imagine that we all have wondered at times about the salvation of our Arminian friends who believe in human free will regarding their salvation. We often refer to them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. Nonetheless, I have often asked the question of myself, is this issue so critical that one's salvation depends on getting it right? Even if we, the Reformed, are wrong, we at least give God 100% of the credit for our salvation. Whereas it seems the free willers give only what 80%, 90%, or even only 50% to God. But maybe that doctrine in itself isn't as important as its earthly consequences, so to speak. What do I mean? I am simply referring to the long-term practical consequences of preaching free will salvation. Dr. Wright, in his book, writes about the sequential history of churches, which slowly accept the Arminian viewpoint. So what is the Arminian viewpoint and why should it matter to us? In believing what they do, they are introducing humanism, perhaps unknowingly, into the church. Humanism is a philosophy that asserts the dignity and worth of man and his capacity for self-realization through reason and that often rejects supernaturalism. Think of Thomas Jefferson. We've always, I bet we've all read that at some point in our lives, how he used to cut out the supernatural parts out of his Bible. He just didn't go for that. I guess he qualified as a humanist. Humanism provides an autonomy from God that will grow more and more powerful as time goes by. Year by year, decade by Decade. this happens within the church. A quote which is indirectly describing such potential was from Martin Luther at his trial for heresy when he did not say, my conscience is my authority. Do you remember what he said? He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Sadly, according to Dr. Wright the history of churches through the decades and centuries is almost always one of moving from Calvinism to Arminianism in its different forms. For example, Methodism, or modern Evangelicalism, the revivalism of the 1800s with Charles Finney, and then into more liberal theology, such as Unitarianism, which denies the Trinity itself, and universalism, which rejects virtually every tenet of the historical Christian church. This is why I find the historic confession of Reformed tradition so valuable. They are the guardrails that will help us to stay on the correct path, the narrow path that not many have the privilege of taking. And that's the end of that diatribe. <laughs> I, I want to share one little more, thing more with you out of this book. We all know the name Wesley, of course. John Wesley was the preacher that was a contemporary of both Jonathan Edwards and of uh, Whitfield and that time period. And his brother, Charles Wesley, of course, was the great hymn writer. And this, the author of this book stumbled into, I guess you'd say, here's some words written by Charles Wesley that were in a hymn. He starts by saying, this was Charles Wesley's testimony. Listen closely. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And then Dr. Wright says, Here we have a truly regenerate Arminian, describing his own conversion in fully Calvinistic terms. I don't know if he knew what he was saying there. (laughs) I guess God was working in Charles Wesley in that instance. So, um, that's also funny. I have another book at home. It's called Great Speeches in History. And one of them... He, he does various well-known sermons that have been given over the centuries. And one of them was by John Wesley, the brother of Charles. And boy, does he ream Calvinism up one side and down the other. And I, I'm thinking, did Charles not know what he was saying here? He, he, he was so Calvinistic. and I don't know if he and his brother ever clashed or not. But, and we sing. Our hymnal has, has hymns in it written by Charles Wesley seems like there's a little inconsistency in his message anyway that's that's all I had to say today, but I hope you're as convinced as I am now that that God is indeed sovereign and that nothing takes place in our lives that's apart from his will, even though as we all know you can face hard times and difficult things but but ultimately God is in charge of it and it's for for our own good. So, praise God for that.